desperately need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops Market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning to you. This is Buffalo What's Next. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm Jay Moran. Coming up in the second half of the program, Dave Debo is going to talk with uh, Dr. Myron Glick from uh, Jericho Road, talking about health disparities in our community. It's a conversation that we've had and will continue to have for sure, most certainly worthwhile in that sense. But right now, I want to talk about some senior issues in the city of Buffalo, specifically in some of our less served communities. Daisy Ball is with us from the Buffalo Federation of Neighborhood Centers. We'll uh, boil that down to just the BFNC. Mm-hmm. And she's uh, the uh, director of the Hope Center and their senior support services. Daisy, thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was great. It's uh, uh, lots to talk about here. You've got a, a great story because, you know, you've been involved with uh, the BFNC in a couple of different ways. I want to talk about that a little later on. But let's first of all, talk about uh, an element of this that you brought to my attention, that some time ago you did a, a, a survey mm-hmm. of senior, what the seniors wanted, mm-hmm. right? This is something that you did organically mm-hmm. and found out about your community. What was the response? Well, it wasn't as organic as we wanted it to okay. be. So basically uh, what was happening is that uh, funders were looking for more tangible outcomes than just tradi- traditional senior activities programs. So senior centers uh, were, you know, were typically, you know, a place for socialization where you could come, play bingo, uh, play cards, have lunch, things of that nature. And so um, funders were saying that's all well and good, but we don't see tangible outcomes on how really? this improve, okay. improves wellness. And right. so um, we knew that we were going to have to shift in order to make sure that our center remained viable. And so with that being said, we also wanted to know what the seniors themselves wanted. We know what funders want, right? We need to be able to produce outcomes and results. But on top of that, we wanted to make sure that we provide what the seniors need. And so I don't profess to be an expert, at least at that time either, of what they needed. And and so we asked the question. You know, we did several community meetings, um, open meetings with the seniors uh, to do surveys and, and say, okay, what are some of the things that you're looking for? And out of that, came housing was number one okay a hundred percent of participants that uh, 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 participated in the survey said that they needed uh, access to affordable housing uh, the next thing that came out 100 percent 100 percent. 100% of all senior surveyed said housing is an issue okay. uh, the next uh, uh, component was access to transportation access to health care access to um, 
uh, food access, uh, healthy and nutritious foods, which is a big one because most of the population that I had at the time at our center were type 2 diabetics. But mm. the food donations that we have come in and understand we love them, sure. but their stuff is not good for them. We get the rolls, we get the pastries, we get the donuts, all the stuff that's good, but again, is not going to help if you're a type 2 diabetic, sure. right? Um, and so uh, food access and, and, and veggies, uh, getting more fresh produce and vegetables for us was a, a big initiative. And then on top of that, uh, they wanted a place where they could come in community uh, to socialize that would be state of the art, you know, a, a senior center where they would have, you know, if they needed assistance with their activities for daily living, such as bathing or being able to do laundry, those kind of things, that they had a place that they could go where those things would be offered. And so we took all of that information and really, you know, sat at the table with a lot of community um, uh, organizations and, and partners and said, you know, this is the problem. How do we fix this? What can we do to address this concern? And so for our agency, that's how the BFNC Westminster Commons was born. I want to talk about the Westminster Commons, but I just one element of the mm-hmm. of the survey there that you talked about, the, like you said, the fresh mm-hmm. produce and mm-hmm. such. And we've heard a lot about that since 514, haven't we? When mm-hmm. uh, you know, tops closed and all of a sudden uh, a, a major source mm-hmm. of that type of uh, product was not available to, to mm-hmm. folks. How did you, how did your organization address that need? What what have you done? Been able, have you, I guess, have since you been successful? No, no, even before that, have you been successful in addressing that need? Oh, yeah. So okay. we were doing that work prior to 514. And please know, it was a tragedy in our community. And, you know, we were patrons of, of the top's on, on on Jefferson for years. We uh, th- we shopped there for our senior programs. They sponsored a lot of the events that we did with so our you really, seniors. So you really felt the closure we as felt, much as anybody. Yeah. We felt it just as much as anyone else. And so, um, but to say, you know, in terms of how we addressed it, out of that needs assessment, the first thing we did was talk with um, the Buffalo Niagara Medical um, Campus uh, and uh, some really great partners there. And they, and they helped us uh, launch our grassroots garden which was at the ah, Moot Center. Okay. We have 12 boxes. Uh, and this was, you know, pre-pandemic uh, where we had, you know, fresh produce and master gardeners that were coming. And we, we you know, provided and supplemented uh, vegetables for our seniors in our lunches. But then on top of that, they had free produce to take home with them. You're able to produce that much. Yeah, 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 yeah. We had, and, and the crops were beautiful. We had greens, we had cucumbers, we had peppers of all kinds of varieties and tomatoes. Oh my gosh. You know, all these just wonderful uh, produce and the seniors loved it. You know, and not only were we able to supplement the nutrition program that we offered at the center, but seniors also were able to take vegetables home. So, and that, and that garden has been in existence for about four or five years now. So again, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were addressing that concern. The another thing that we did is that we also uh, partnered with uh, uh, Urban Fruits and Veggies, um, Allison Dahoney and her crew, mm. uh, to provide uh, fresh fruits and vegetables uh, through the mobile market. We, uh, The Massachusetts Avenue Project was also uh, one of the first markets that were launched at the Moot Center when the Moot was open. And, you know, we have been consistently doing that throughout. Um, now with our new location, Feed More Western New York, 
has been our partner to provide um, the seasonal farmers market. But then on top of that, we also have been working to secure grant funding to be able to fight to provide groceries uh, and fresh produce bags to seniors uh, through the winter months for 12 weeks. Uh, another program that we did during the pandemic was in partnership with the Journey Church of, of Buffalo, uh, Pastor Art Hall and his crew. And, uh, you know, they called me up when the pandemic first started and said, hey, we want to make sure that your seniors are are able to get groceries, what can we do? And next thing I know, they set up the Groceries to Seniors Initiative. BFNC became a partner, and we started doing uh, grocery bag deliveries to seniors with fruit, fresh fruits and vegetables and then a hot meal. And they got that every week during the pandemic, and now that program still exists, and it's uh, one delivery uh, uh, per month, and we're actually going to be doing the delivery next week. So uh, as you were talking there, and the, the list kind of makes this, uh, mm-hmm. I think, an obvious answer. Answer, but I'll ask the question anyway. You said early on, funders want to see results. Mm-hmm. They're pleased with the results. Yes, they're they're pleased with the results. But honestly, we can still do more. I mean, I've, it's sad that five fourteen brought this issue to the forefront. Uh, but again, there's still much more that we can do. Now, what we've done since 514, we've created the You Matter Transportation Fund. And uh, through the You Matter Transportation Fund, we pr- we're providing cab rides to seniors to be able to get to the grocery store. And then I do van trips uh, through at the Westminster Building for uh, uh, senior groups to be able to go and do their shopping. And what we do is I don't limit it to just the grocery store. Because okay. again, Seniors, uh, transportation they is a barrier. They want to, they wanna, so to, like everybody, we want to do we lots wanna of do, things. We wanna, so what I try to do is that it's always majority rules because, you know, my wow. seniors okay. my seniors take me to task. So, you know, I, I bet they do. I don't want to make the decisions for them. So what we do is, uh, you know, I say, hey, this is the day we're going shopping. Where does everyone want to go? And it's majority rules. And okay. so the parameters are that, you know, it has to be within a 30 minute ride of our center. So that allows us to go to the first tier suburb. So we can go to the boulevard. We can go to to um, uh, uh, Southtown, Southgate Plaza. We can go to some places that offer a variety of shops and different things for people to do diverse things. Okay. And so, and that's what we've been doing. And the other part of it is, is providing access to other stores, right? Uh, the tops on, on, on the Boulevard on Maple is wonderful. And even though they've redone our tops on Jefferson and we're very thrilled for that, uh, it's still a, a certain, the, it's size limited, right? There's only so much square footage. Right. So at the bigger stores, there may be more options. And for me, options are important for our seniors. Um, Trader Joe's, some of our seniors have never been able to go to Trader Joe's. Now that's an, a portal that's been open for them. Um, going well, to I'm the just course. curious, what's the response then? I mean, like you said, if they... Oh, they yeah. love it. Yeah? Uh, the, they love it. Um, th- but what's needed for us to keep those kind of things going are more volunteers. Okay. Volunteers are, are really... Um, a, a central component of offering any type of senior programming um, because volunteers can help with driving, helping just organize some of these things. Um, because again, uh, senior programs are not the most funded programs. And so we rely heavily on volunteers uh, to supplement our programming. Um, and But the seniors love it. Are you kidding? Yeah. If, if we could go somewhere else every, new every day, they would love that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> with us is uh, Daisy Ball. She is uh, with the uh, BFNC. Um, and they're, uh, she's actually the director of uh, the Hope Center and their senior support services. And a lot of issues here to talk about. The one that you did talk about at the beginning, like you said, 100% mm-hmm. on that survey, mm-hmm. housing, access to affordable housing, which is very, it's troubling on so many levels. It's not a surprise, but, you know, mm-hmm. you we're hearing 
with rents rising in the city of Buffalo and everywhere for that matter, that mm-hmm. there's a real concern about affordable housing moving forward here, that uh, some are predicting a crisis mm-hmm. ready to emerge. But mm-hmm. let's talk about how you and the BFNC went about addressing this particular need. Uh, well, uh, we basically said, okay, well, what can we do? And we started meeting again with uh, community partners to say, uh, we want to be able to provide a housing component, but we, it's not just housing. We wanted to build a complex for aging in place. Now, typically, um, what we see in our in our suburbs and whatnot, that there's more land and, and more areas to be able to do those kind right. of things. Um, and so what we found was talking with a lot of the long-term care providers, the nursing home providers, um, the insurance providers, the folks that do this work, you know, what were some of the ways that you all were able to implement your program? programs out in your in your areas. And so uh, luckily, you know, they they were willing to sit down with us and have those conversations. And so we said, if we were able to do an aging in place in city of Buffalo, what would it look like? Mm. And the difference is, is that we didn't necessarily want to be the, the provider to do it all. We recognize what we're good at, right? We're good at providing um, support services and then finding the right partners to link with our seniors. And so um, out of that, what came out of this project was we wanted to have continue our activities program, make it a structured day program, but then get a healthcare partner to come in and, and provide healthcare. Get uh, a partner to come in and provide um, uh, financial assistance and entitlement assistance. Get a partner that would be able to provide transportation and, and someone that would be able to assist us in developing housing for seniors. Okay. And so, you know, there were a lot of folks on that team. Our executive director, Shonda Redfern, will speak more on that when you bring her in okay. next week. But, um, <laughs> Out of that, you know, it was the the uh, Westminster Commons was born, and so uh, eighty four unit apartment building uh, that has access to all of these other services that are available in the West Westminster Community House, which is right next door to the apartments, and so seniors are able to access all of our different services at the Westminster Community House, and you know, and they're not separated from their families. Uh, what we found as we were going into the surveys, especially as seniors had increased need for long-term care supports, um, they would be separated if they in- ended up in the hospital and had to go to rehab. Typically, the rehab facilities are not in Buffalo. They're out in the suburban areas. If um, they're low-income families, transportation could be an issue. They're separated from their families. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was work with Erie County, work with City of Buffalo, to try and make sure that our seniors can remain in community where they came from okay. with all of these additional supports. So... Um, that's what this iteration of aging in place looks like for us in partnering with the Community Health Center of Buffalo, in partnering with um, Erie County Senior Services, in partnering with uh, uh, Mari, uh, Mari Fox of Soul Candy Yoga, in partnering with... I just have to jump in with this. Mm-hmm. You, you dress a certain way today because it's yoga day. Oh yes, it is yoga. <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm in my my yoga wear because today is Wellness Day at, at our center, and so yes, we will be having yoga. So today. seniors will be participating. In oh, yoga. and they love and and we call it Soul Candy Yoga because it's all soul music, and you know they they I have to say they get down. I see <laughs> I see walkers getting flown uh, strung to the side. I see seniors who you know who may have limited mobility. All of a sudden, it's like they don't need their cane anymore. They're able to to do 
do certain things. And so that movement is so important. And so, you know, we're really excited that Mari um, has, has just embraced us and she's just a fireball of energy and right. she, and she, she gets our population and, and they look for her, you know, they're like, it's yoga day. We're ready. <laughs> and, and, and that's what we want to do. Sure. You know, our, our, our day program is BFNC life services, BFNC life center services. And that's what we're about. We're about increasing longevity with our seniors, increasing the quality of life, enhancing their experience, knowing that there's still so much more life to live, no matter what stage we're in. Uh, also providing caregiver supports, which is huge. You know, our caregivers do so much. And a lot of times seniors are caregivers to one another. Right. And so making sure that we have programs and supports in place to be able to address those concerns in a number of different ways. That's what we try to do. You must have, you must be getting to know a lot of the seniors that, oh, that yeah. come in. Do you worry about them? What, 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 uh, what are your concerns for them? Oh gosh. A lot of the concerns is again, affordable housing and rents, um, even with fixed incomes and, and reduced rents. You know, especially with the increase of the inflation that's happening now, things cost so much more. So seniors are making tough choices on whether or not they're getting their medication or they're buying food. Oh, no. And no one should have to make that choice. Right. You know what I'm saying? That that hurts me when I see those kind of choices having to be made. Um not being able to participate in a program. To give you an example, you know, we went last night to go see Tina, and we, uh, uh, through through funding, we were able to cover a majority of the cost for the ticket, but there was still a nominal cost of $20, and it's a struggle for some seniors to even pay that. And, uh, you know, I finally just had to say, you know what? Nope, we're going to do this. And so uh, seniors being able to go and participate and not having to worry about how they're going to pay for something, you know, those are the things that concern me. Their health, being able to have access to specialists that are not in our, uh, you know, outside of their uh, reach, you know, by trans limits of transportation, you know, have bringing more f services to them versus trying to get them out to other services elsewhere. You know, those things are important. So, you know, finding the right community partners that want to engage with us and help us that to me, that's the most important thing. With us uh, this morning is Stacy Ball. She is with uh, the Buffalo Federation of Neighborhood Centers, and uh, specifically she's the uh, director of the Hope Center and their senior support services. And uh, you were talking about the um, uh, Westminster mm -hmm. uh, Community House, mm -hmm. a historic part of, of Buffalo. It, actually, if you, read, if you go to bfnc.org, mm -hmm. great history about settle, the settlement house movement here, uh, the how it touched Buffalo and how it has transformed mm -hmm. throughout the years. But it, it's an interesting element of this that that community house is well over a century old it is and, and yet so it's still functional it's yes it's still functional and we are really if you've ever been to the westminster community house it's located at 419 monroe street we are looking for you because we know there are a lot of rich stories about the westminster building uh, um you know every day i hear seniors saying i used to come here and play basketball i used to come here and do uh knitting with my mom i used to come here and do other things and in fact Yesterday, I met a senior for the first time who said that this center raised her, that the, the, that she literally, when, when she was not at home, she was there participating in all the things that were offered by the Westminster Presbyterian Church, um, who founded the Westminster um, Community House. Um, in, in, the, in the 80s, Westminster Presbyterian uh, uh, and uh, the, the Neighborhood House Association merged, and that's how we became BFNC, and that, that's how we became in possession of that building. 
And so I'm just thrilled to say that, you know, the, the core legacy of what the Westminster Community House was, which was to serve the people, provide opportunities to congregate, come together, whether it was for meals, whether it was for meetings, whether it was for uh, after school programs, helping youth, helping seniors, helping community. That's what we're still doing now. And so we're really excited um, uh, that a lot of different things are coming online there. And the Westminster Presbyterian Church is still very much involved with us. And so they actually funded our kitchen, um, our new commercial kitchen, which we are so thankful for. A lot of great meals are coming out of there. So, <laughs> Helps, you know, it? <laughs> it's coming online. And so, again, you know, you know, you all should check us out wherever you are. Come and check us out. You know, uh, Daisy, though, your um, your personal story hmm. weaves through the BFNC. Uh, would you mind sharing it with our audience? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, I started in 90, 1997. I was 24 years old and didn't really have a formal education, and I was a single mom. And uh, they took a chance on me. They hired me to be the administrative assistant um, uh, there. And uh, they. it was the first time that I saw so many people of color who look like me in professional roles and in leadership roles. And so uh, the, the vision or value statement at the time of the organization was unlocking potential and enriching lives of others. And I'm truly a product of that. You know, my leadership at the time, they, they took a chance on me. They, they encouraged me to go to school. They made schedule accommodations for me to do that. They allowed me when I didn't have daycare that I could bring my daughter to, to work and, 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 and still do my day. Um, and, and, and I've gone on to do some great things. Uh, there came a time where I had to say, you know what, I, I have to stop working so I can really pursue graduate school and, 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 and all of those different things. And I've had some really great experiences and, and BFNC always stayed with me. My core work ethic was developed at BFNC. How so? Because it truly taught me what the meaning of service was. And so when I went on to do other things, it, I always ask, how does the community benefit? What, how do we make sure we're giving back? What are some of those things? And um, as, I, as I went on and, and, and to, to graduate school and worked at UB, I kept asking that question. What, what are some of the things that we can do? Uh, when I came back to community and worked at the Service Collaborative, again, uh, connecting with BFNC, we collaborated uh, to provide services to community. And then, you know, my mentor, who then became executive director, he says, you know what? You, you've gone out here and you've done a lot. It's time to come home. <laughs> we have something for you to do. And, and, and lo and behold, Hold, it was uh, uh, become the director of the senior program at the Moot Center. And what's so interesting is that uh, the I, I came back to where it all began. I was a, a secretary in the basement of the Moot Center. Now I came back and I'm running the Moot Center. <laughs> um, and again, a, a BFNC allowed an opportunity for me to grow. They developed me in, in that level of leadership, running a department. Um, showing me about the grant writing components, really, you know, figuring out this next phase of leadership, you know, and, and, and our agency invests a lot in our employees. And so I, again, am a benefit of that. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I tell any and everyone, you know, I, it takes, just like they say, it takes a village to sure. raise a child. It takes really a sound mentorship, 
you know, in, in, in your professional career in order for you to get to the next phase of where you need to be. And BFNC has done that. And our new CEO, again, she's a product of BFNC. She's been there for over 20 years. She's done other things, but she was being cultivated in the next generation of leadership. And now she's our CEO. And so, and again, she's espousing those values to new folks who are coming in within the organization as well. Can you reflect on this a little bit for us, Stacey? Um, Going back to that, that that time, you're the you're the single mom. Mm-hmm. You're coming in there. Did you have a, an idea that you could be this somebody who does this? Went got this advanced schooling and became a, a director like this and helping so many people out. You know, I, it's funny you asked that question. At the time when I first started, no, I, but I saw the possibilities. Okay. The question for me was, how do I get there? You know, and and again. Um, when you're being exposed to so many new things, one, you have to have confidence. And sometimes you had confidence. I, I, I did in, in some areas and I did it in others. And that's where mentorship comes in. Right. Ah. Because then that's where you get the push. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, no, you can do this. It's OK. You're going to you're do going it. to do it. Right? <laughs> right. But having folks that can help push you and see things in you that you may not see in yourself to be able to get to that next phase. And I have to honestly say I've been very fortunate in that regard. And I take that very seriously. And I also make sure I'm mentoring and I'm pushing and doing the same thing that was given to me to others and, and being able to provide that opportunity. Um, and, and so what I would say is, you know, BFNC has poured into me and I have a lot of fidelity to my organization. I could say I'm a cheerleader sure. <laughs> for well, BFNC. I think we've got but, that. As, but aside <laughs> from that, um, it also, again, it, it, it shaped my uh, my values uh, in regards to how we serve in community and especially in communities of color. Um, I also know collaboration is important and working with or- other organizations and like-minded individuals and then also folks that don't think like us and and. and and trying to figure out how we can work together to do good for others. And so, and that can come out in a number of different ways. And so uh, BFNC and along with all of my other uh, career services and things that I've done over, over the years have really shown me that there's more than one way to, to uh, let's say, uh, What's, what's the word I want to say? Improve a light bulb. <laughs> oh, oh, nice. I like that. I wasn't sure we are going to go with that yeah. metaphor. But then I'm going to ask you this then. BFNC offered you mentorship. You found it. It helped you. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's other opportunities inside the BFNC. But overall, for the East Side community, mm-hmm. is there enough? Is there enough mentorship? Or are there enough that can help people who might find themselves in circumstances like you were in uh, 20 years ago? Well, I I would say there's never enough mentorship, you know, because again, though it's mentorships is also about building relationships, and so uh, you have to have the time to be able to do that. And if you are someone who is giving of your time, sometimes you can be stretched thin, right? So we need more people out here doing that kind of work. And I would say outside of mentorship, it's development. It's leadership development, pulling out the leadership potential in others. And so uh, for me, that was recently through the Oshai Foundation, through the Karen Spaulding Fellowship for Leaders of Color. That really, for me, was a transformational experience. Okay, how so? It it really allowed me to take a look back and, and one, 
uh, they use a, a, a tool called the 360 degree leadership model. And so basically what that is, is they send a survey out to your peers, your, your colleagues, uh, your, your employers, just a number of different folks in, in, your, in your circles. And they ask a series of survey questions, things of that nature, and then they go over those um, outcomes with you. But aside from that, it allows you to really think about your purpose. What are the outcomes you're trying to do, not just in, in, in your professional life, but in your personal life? And then what is your process in getting there? And so for me, being able to go through all those things with a group of folks who are just so dedicated um, to community and the, and, the, and the work that they do. And what I was saying earlier before we got on, on, on air was that, you know, when we're doing this work, a lot of times we, we lose sight of our impact, right? We're just, we're getting up, we're getting out and saying, okay, this is what we have to do sure. for the day. Sure. But this allows time for that self-reflection to be able to say, wow, okay, this is what we've accomplished or what I've accomplished. And this is really where I'm trying to go next and always thinking about the what's next and having, having folks that you can bounce your thoughts, your ideas in a safe space to be able to do that, process that out. You know, I'm not sure if somebody put a, a survey like that in front of me, if I could answer the mm-hmm. word purpose. Mm-hmm. What, what, I'm curious, can I cheat off your sheet? What did you put down? Purpose. Well, my purpose is to help organizations increase capacity. Right now, it's within BFNC. You know, I have programs that are getting off the ground, and and my goal is to make sure that we have sufficient funding, that we have uh, 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 we're making the out the outreach that we need to make in order to serve the community who needs us the most. But on top of that, I'm also in ministry. I'm a minister, and for me, it's very important that faith based organizations also have access to these tools and resources to be able to grow, not just in their ministries, but in helping community. We have a lot of issues happening in our city, and uh, faith-based organizations are increasingly becoming involved in trying to figure out, you know, how do we provide housing? How do we make sure that food uh, uh, communities have food? How do we make sure that uh, our kids have good after-school programs and things of that nature? And there are huge organizations in our city that are doing this work, but we know that there has to be be more intentional collaborations around this um, in a number of different arenas. And so um, to answer your question earlier that you said about mentorship, um, is there enough of it? Again, these are ways to be involved. It's not just about traditional one-on-one, person-to-person, but it also could be larger organizations mentoring smaller ones as well. So for me, it's about connecting those dots for for folks and and making sure we're all at the table together. So that's my purpose. Yeah, you know, and Daisy... Inside your purpose, you, uh, I think you answered my final question, which is, you know, what does Buffalo need? And I think you, you summed it up right there. Thank you yeah. so much. A- Thank absolutely. You. Uh, Daisy Ball is the uh, uh, director of the Hope Center. It's part of uh, the BFNC, and uh, she is in, uh, in charge of their senior support services. I encourage you to find out a little bit more about the, the history and more about BFNC by going to bfnc.org. A really fascinating historical uh, look back at, to from where you guys started to where you are right now. Uh, Daisy, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great having you. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. There are a lot of great ways to spend $8 a month and get a blue check mark. So why not become a member of WBFO, your NPR station? 
You'll be a verified member on the spot, and your money will support high-quality news and information. For fun, we'll send you a snazzy window cling and a travel mug, both with our logo and the blue check mark that shows everyone you're a verified member of WBFO. Just call 1-877-456-8870 or go to WBFO.org to make your pledge. Thank you. Who better to show off the fantastic towns of Western New York and Southern Ontario than the people who live there? Check out the popular WNED PBS Our Town series, now on YouTube. Debuting this week is Our Town Niagara-on-the-Lake. Filmed by community members in 2004, it features the region's wine country, Queen Street, Fort George, and so much more. Head to the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel to watch. And subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Watch Love and Respect with Killer Mike, Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. on WNED-PBS. It's a different kind of talk show. Hosted by Michael Render, a.k.a. Killer Mike from Run the Jewels, who hosts no-holds-barred conversations with some of today's biggest celebrities and politicians. Tuesdays at 7.30 on WNED-PBS. This is Buffalo What's Next where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. For the balance of the program today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Myron Glick, MD. He's the CEO of Jericho Road Community Health Center. They operate uh, on Barton Street in Buffalo, several other locations as well. They're the people who are behind something called Priscilla's Program for Mothers. They operate Vive La Casa, and there is much to talk about there. They provide community health services, yes, to refugees and immigrants, but also to communities across the east and west sides of Buffalo. And in that regard, there is much to talk about. We have heard us on previous programs get into the idea of social determinants of health and some of the health disparities that various uh, underserved communities face. We'll be getting into all of that with Dr. Glick. Thanks so much for being here, sir. Thank you, Dave, for having me. I want to, and this may make you blush, it may may be... um, more immodest than I know you are, but uh, Channel 2 just did a profile of you a while back, and the quote that they chose to pull out of it I think is one that's worth sharing here with the audience. The way I can honor God best is to take care of the people that he cares about the most, which I think is the most vulnerable and marginalized. That's, that's a mission statement right there. When you say vulnerable and marginalized people, who do you mean? Well, I think, you know, I've had a front row seat over the last 25 years to see how our healthcare system treats folks who maybe don't have health insurance or um, grew up in communities where they didn't have access to good health care, um, maybe lived, you know, in, a, in, in situations in our life where they just didn't have access. And so I think, you know, the marginalized and the vulnerable um, with regards to health care are folks that just don't have access to the quality care that we should all take for granted. Why is that? Um, again, on this program, we have t- discussed in the past the problems, and uh, people always speak of the social determinants of health. 
do certain folks come to the table with less of uh, a chance, basically? Sure. I mean, that's that's exactly uh, true. It would take a long time to sort of unpack that. But I guess what I think about as a doctor is that if you look at what health means, about 10% of someone's ability to be healthy is based on the medical care that I provide. Another 10% is probably our genetics. And then there's a whole 80%, the vast majority of what really allows someone to be healthy is based on things like what zip code were they born into? Uh, what kind of education do they have? Uh, the issue of racism, uh, segregation by zip code, uh, poverty. And these, these, these determinants uh, dramatically affect uh, the ability of a child to grow up and be truly healthy. Make that concrete for me. What kind of issues does someone have that keeps them from being healthy long term? You know, I deliver babies, and uh, when I see a baby for the first time, they all look the same to me. Uh, They all look generally healthy. Like, you think that they're going to grow up and be fine. But then I'm also a family doctor. I I see those children for their well-child visits. I, I watch them grow up. And what I realize is that, you know, if you you grow up in a home where maybe you don't have access to food every night or you go to a school where things are really stressed or you live in a community where violence is is too common uh, those that all affects your ability to have opportunities which put you in a place to succeed how does that play out specifically for new americans refugees and immigrants You know, one of the things that I tell folks is that when every child as a refugee comes to Jericho Road for the first time, we do a lead test. And then we repeat that lead test in six months. And what we find invariably is that the lead test tends to go up after six months of being in Buffalo. What that reflects is that we put refugees into housing that is old, it's beat up, and it's the cheapest we can find in this area. And that housing stock isn't good enough. It's not good enough for anyone. And so we see lead levels rise in new refugees' uh, children. Uh, that's just a small example of how uh, poverty and um, access to good housing affects someone's health. And that's universal for anyone who's in substandard housing, you would say? Yes, I would say that. Mm. What do you do about it? As someone's lead level rises, do you just take them out of that situation? I mean, it, it depends. They're, they're, we monitor them. If it gets too high, we can do some medical treatment of it. And then, yes, you press for a better housing place or the health department comes in and fixes up the problem. You push the landlord to fix the house. Like, there's lots of things that we do, but what it really reflects, the bigger picture is that it reflects that we agree to leave, live in a world where some of us have access to the best housing and some of us have access to... Uh, the worst housing, and we we think that's okay. So you're a doctor who takes care of individual patients, but you see the mission as being bigger, taking care of the community needs or these social determinants again. Again, I think we we want to see people well cared for, and we want to see community individuals, families, and communities transformed. 
And we realize, we recognize that to do that, we have to go beyond um, providing just basic health care. We have to be part of the solution to see uh, our communities transformed. One of those ways is through something called Priscilla's Program. It's for pregnant mothers. Tell me what that's about. Yeah, so the Priscilla Project came out of a realization probably, I don't know, 20 years ago that uh, in a way it's easy to deliver a baby from a technical standpoint, do the medical care, but so many of the women I was seeing uh, were coming to me. First, maybe they didn't have, they weren't excited to be pregnant. Uh, it was a big challenge for them. Uh, they didn't have a lot of support at home. Uh, refugees who were new to the commun- to our community um, didn't understand um, how to access prenatal care, uh, didn't have anyone to go with them to the hospital, um, maybe no one to take care of the kids while they were going through labor. And so all these challenges we uh, meet with this Priscilla Project that provides a doula, provides an interpreter, provides uh, prenatal education, and um, the support that's needed to help them do well during their pregnancy. And another example of that would be Vive La Casa. You saw a need for housing, again, mostly for immigrants and refugees. So Jericho Road set up this, this tell me, shelter, basically, right? Well, I wouldn't, Dave, I wouldn't want to take credit for the beginning of Vive. Vive, was, Vive La Casa was started almost 40 years ago by some Catholic nuns. Mm. And it was meant to provide a shelter for folks who were passing through Buffalo on their way to Canada to get asylum in Canada. Almost like the Underground Railroad of the past, mm. this, in some ways, Buffalo is now the Underground Railroad for migrants and asylum seekers looking for a safe place for their families to call home. And Canada often represents that. Seven, we were providing some health care for the folks in that shelter. And about seven or eight years ago, I think it was in 2015, um, the folks at Vive, the board came to Jericho Road, came to me and said, we're struggling. This is a, a challenging endeavor. Would Jericho Road decide, uh, agree to take Vive over? And so for the last seven years, uh, we have managed Vive as a program of Jericho Road. And it fits the overall mission, the idea that you see a need that affects the health of a community, so you address both the need and the health of the community. Yes, I think Vive performs a very integral and important and essential task for our city, which is to provide asylum seekers who are coming through here with no support, uh, to provide them with a safe place, shelter, uh, legal aid, health care, while they are in this transition. Explain to me who that is and how that happens. Someone arrives in Buffalo from where, steps off a bus and needs a place to live. How, how does that all uh, uh, happen? What, what, what's a typical, if there is indeed a typical, what's a typical scenario? I think most typical now is that folks are coming from places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, from Venezuela, from Colombia, from Honduras, from Afghanistan, from Ukraine, uh, from Haiti, and they are forced out of their home country. They're basically fleeing for their lives alone or with their families. And their journey 
is a long one. It often involves going by airplane or by ship uh, to a country like Brazil and then literally walking from Brazil or one of those um, Latin American countries across um, a very difficult journey between uh, Colombia and Panama um, and then up through Central America. It might take six months for that journey. A lot of challenges, a danger. People die. Uh, people are raped. We see all kinds of, of horrible stuff that happens. When they get to the southern border um, and cross, then they're often arrested and put in detention by our government. And then eventually when they're released, uh, they are they find out about Vive uh, and and they head to Buffalo. Mm. And when they get here, then we help them either uh, figure out their, their legal status in this country. And some of the folks that we, many of the folks that we take care of Vive become productive citizens of Buffalo. But many also uh, we help get into Canada. And you know, that's probably the most normal story. There's lots of other ways that people connect with us, but it usually now is a long journey that involves crossing our southern border. And I've even heard that uh, the folks that are coming up from the southern border are not necessarily coming from those countries. Someone wants to get out of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. They can't come directly to the United States. Right. So they then leave whatever place they're leaving, mm -hmm. go to South America, and after that journey, mm -hmm. take the six-month journey up to Buffalo. Yes, yes, no question. People, I, I recently interviewed a young man who his journey from Eritrea to Buffalo took 16 years. He was imprisoned five times, and um, I mean, he barely escaped with his life. And now he's here in Buffalo and is in school and got married and, and is a productive citizen of our community. But he, his journey is, was incredible. And, and we see people like that every day. Mm. Tell me about the actual facility. Vive on Wyoming Avenue houses how many? And what are your expansion plans? Because I know we want to talk sure. about that. So it's a, it's a pretty beat-up building. used to be a school building. It's about 20,000 square feet, dormitory-style um, living. We've tried to do the best we can with a pretty beat-up Buffalo building. Every night we house about 120 people, mm. and that includes uh, many children, families, and single folks. Uh, we provide food, shelter, legal help, health care, all that stuff. We are... We've bought 1500 Main Street, uh, the old Bristol home, beautiful facility, about 50,000 square feet, and we're in the middle of a capital campaign to raise $6 million to not only complete the purchase, which we have, but also to completely renovate that space into a very inviting um, uh, home for asylum seekers. And we hope to move into that facility uh, next year in early summer. Another one of the programs that you, you offer uh, isn't necessarily here in Buffalo. You have health centers overseas to help folks that end up starting here and going back to their mm -hmm. home countries. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah, one of the incredible things personally for me is that I grew up thinking I was going to be a medical missionary doctor in another country. That's why I went into medicine. And then during medical school here, 
I realized how the poor were treated and decided to stay in Buffalo and start Jericho Road. Never on the west side of Buffalo, um, with folks that were on Medicaid or uninsured. Didn't before the refugees started to pour in. And what happened is amazingly is uh, we've been involved in refugee care all these years, built relationships with folks, and now in some situations have followed them back to their home countries and are helping them operate health centers in Sierra Leone, Congo, and Nepal. It's an amazing privilege. And one of them is in Goma. Mm-hmm. in the Congo, mm-hmm. surrounded by an environment where mm-hmm. I don't think you could run a health mm-hmm. center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the National Geographic in 2013 said that Goma was the most dangerous city to live in. It's surrounded by these volcanoes that periodically you know, pop off. Uh, there's this 30-year uh, war that's killed millions and millions of people in eastern Congo and is still ongoing. It's a geopolitical mess. We in the West supported in some ways by our insatiable desire for these minerals from this uh, place. In that city, we now run the third largest hospital. We deliver over 150 babies a month, and it's all done by Congolese staff and doctors. And it's an incredible privilege caring for the poorest of the poor in one of the world's most dangerous cities. Dr. Myron Glick is here, CEO, medical director. Are you the, the, the top doctor at Jericho Road as well? I am a family physician and the CEO of Jericho Road. I have a chief medical officer who works alongside me. Now tell me about the idea of family physicians because conventional wisdom says that there just are not enough of those. That the idea of, uh, of someone coming out of medical school and saying, no, I don't want to be a cardiologist, rheumatologist, whatever, not going to a specialty, mm-hmm. but going into family practice mm-hmm. is a true medical need across the country mm-hmm. and here? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I totally believe that being a family doctor is the most amazing thing in the world. I get a chance to, you know, take care of Uh, someone when they're pregnant, deliver the baby, take care of this child as they grow up. I help some days I help someone be born and I help someone die. Uh, We love family doctors, that motto at Jericho Road, that's the basis of our motto. And we hope to inspire many, many more people to become family doctors in the future. Is it hard to get people to be a family doctor? I mean, I think, you know, we don't make the most money and it's not the most prestigious. And so until folks get a chance to come to Jericho Road and see our model, maybe they are hesitant. But we've inspired many people, to medical students, to choose family medicine as a career. And the community health center model is one that is not necessarily, in Jericho Road's case, uh, specific to new Americans, immigrants, refugees. You were telling me that uh, about 50% of your clients, if we can call them that, uh, are are non-English speakers? Yeah. I mean, the Community Health Center model was started in the 1960s as this radical movement to bring excellent health care to, you know, stressed communities. And we were fortunate 10 years ago to become a federally qualified community health center. It's huge in our development and our growth. We, it's allowed us to expand dramatically. And we today serve about 50% of the population of, of our patients are, came as refugees, and about 50% grew up here in Buffalo and just need good health care. And that includes about 900 families that live in the same zip code 
as the top shooting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when when that happened, we 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 checked our database and realized that we serve over 900 families on the Jefferson Avenue, uh, close to the tops. Uh, that shooting um, affected uh, our staff, affected our patients, was personal, and has been uh, motivating to us to do everything we can to try to create a different world so that something like that doesn't happen again. Other than the attention that has now been given to things like social determinants of health, what changed after the shooting? Dave, I wish I could tell you that everything's changed. I don't know that anything is completely changed. I mean, we still live in a country where racism is, is you know, the effects of 400 years of racism are still in our face every day. And it's going to take a lot longer than five months to, to um, see real change happen. So, I mean, it's great that there's attention now being placed but why was there only one grocery store in that whole community? Why, why you know, we have to look at why this happened, be willing to, to accept responsibility, and then make systemic change that, that, that goes much deeper than just sending some money and building some new buildings. I knew we would eventually get there. How do you even start to address systemic change? I've had people on this program that say... Um, and, and this is maybe an analogy that works for you because you're a doctor. Uh, you treat the symptoms one at a time. You take care of the problems that people have, and eventually the attitudes might change. I've heard others say that you have to address it um, in the way that we think about other people, in the attitudinal issues. How do we address structural racism? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I guess I would focus on what I know best, which is healthcare. And what we see in healthcare is that there's these deep racial health disparities. Black folks are much more likely to die young, to die from diseases like diabetes and hypertension and stroke and even COVID. And, and, and I absolutely believe that if we as a healthcare you know system as we as a nation would invest um, in some real tangible ways um, you know make sure that the workforce reflects uh, the the diversity make sure that we invest in programs that we know work like the Priscilla project um, I believe that within a generation we could we could health disparities would no longer exist. Like, I really believe that. It's, it's, it's about intention and money and resources to provide equity. All so right, that- but, but the, the lack of resources stems from the way people think, no? I don't it, think... It's good to address individual health needs, but is there something broader that can even be conceptualized? I, I don't see lack of resources. I see lack of overall in our nation, I see that the resources aren't distributed equitably. So how do we, how do we make decisions to distribute resources equitably? And I guess the, the point I'm trying to raise, correct me if I'm wrong, if this is not the proper argument, mm-hmm. that that lack of equity is because of 
the way we think. Do we need to change that in order to change that? Sure. And how? (laughs) We only have five minutes left. How do we do that? (laughs) I, you know, I'm committed to push my organization, Jericho Road, to put its resources where it makes the most difference with regards to equity. I think the city of Buffalo needs to do that. I think our county needs to do that. Our state needs to do that. And our nation needs to do that. And it's to me, it's a matter of leadership. We need folks in leadership who are willing to, to think about equity as the highest value. A community health center along the way, I'm sure, has yardsticks and metrics and needs to look at if a program is successful or not. Mm-hmm. Is there a trend line here? Do you see progress in any particular area? Or, or conversely, is there something that still needs to be addressed even more so because you see the trend line going the other way? Mm-hmm. Well, we so data is everything, right? And when we look at our data at Jericho Road, we have to report out to the federal government on 17 different quality measures. One of those, a number of those quality measures, we've looked at racial health equity and disparities. And what we're finding, for instance, in low birth weights, we deliver 400 babies a year. We look at low birth weights across by race, and we're not seeing the disparities that are seen in the general population. And I believe that's because of the investment that we've made with the Priscilla Project and the investment that our doctors are making with providing excellent care. To me, that's a small example of how if you put the resources in the right place, you can get rid of the disparities. So, so that's what we're seeing. We can, we, can, we can see in our lifetime health disparities not exist anymore if we have the determination to invest the resources the right way. Tell me about the other side of the coin. What is the most unmet need? locally I I think I would say two things I would say housing is a huge need uh, there's so much pressure right now Buffalo's in transition you know housing used to be inexpensive is not anymore so housing that is affordable for families for elderly and the second thing I would say is education matters you know the Buffalo public school system should be excellent and we sh- every child should have an opportunity to have the best education. And so if we could fix housing and if we could fix the education system, that would go a long way to helping Buffalo be a healthy place to live. Are you an optimist? Do you think that's achievable? Uh, on one hand, I'm thinking you have data, you have success. Mm-hmm. You can look at individual programs mm-hmm. and see that uh, things mm-hmm. are working. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, the problem is so vast. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say what um, I think this probably originated with Martin Luther King and President Obama made it famous, that the moral arc of our world bends towards justice. And I guess I'm an optimist that, that somehow we will continue to do our part to bend the moral arc towards justice, towards equity. And again, I, I don't want to plow the same field, but to me that is very much an attitudinal argument. Do you need to change people's minds or do you just need to make them healthier along the way and address? Uh, We had Diane Holton here uh, weeks and weeks ago, and she said, you know, starfish washes up on the beach. 
I throw it back in the water. And some people say, why are you doing that? And she says, well, it matters to that starfish. Mm -hmm. One starfish at a time, you throw mm -hmm. them back in the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that there is a one starfish at a time approach here or attitudinally, how do we change that arc to justice in terms of Martin Luther King and Obama? I mean, it's been a, a really tough last six years, and it is hard to be optimistic given the state of our politics and the leadership in our country. I, I think I have that one-at-a-time star sort of fish mentality, but at the same time, I long for policy changes that an advocate for policy changes that will create the world to be as it should be, not just as it is today. Dr. Myron Glick, thanks so much for being here. Thank Do you, Dave. Dr. Glick is the CEO of the Jericho Road Community Health Center. Early in the pro program, we also looked at the Buffalo Neighborhood Housing Center and their HOPE program. This entire program will be online later today and rebroadcast tonight at 9. Here on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR stations. I'm Dave Devo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.